Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. Well, good morning. And we have a packed house here today. That's fantastic. Okay, yeah, we can applaud that. That's awesome. If you're feeling a little too cramped, we do have 11 o'clock service. There are more open chairs, but you're willing to come to either one of our services. want to welcome you guys here, and if you're cramped online, I'm not sure what to do about that, but anyhow, welcome you guys as well. It's good to have a full house here. We've got an encouraging message for you this morning. God's Word has such an uplifting message in Romans chapter 7, so I'm excited about it today. So we're in this series called The Fight, and it's all about how we can overcome sin in our lives so that we can follow Jesus wholeheartedly and ultimately live the best life possible. And really what we're doing in this series is we're just walking through verse by verse Paul's formula for overcoming sin in Romans 6 to 8. And last week in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, Paul said that as Christians, we are not under law, but under grace. That's some good news right there. We are not under law, but under grace. And people, we really only need one picture to describe grace. It's the picture of Jesus himself. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If you want to know what grace looks like, you don't have to look any further than the one who is grace personified. But what if, what if Jesus came to this earth And he was the perfect embodiment of the law rather than grace. Like, what would his interactions with his disciples and others have been like? Well, a number of years ago, some very clever Christians with way too much time on their hands, they took some various video clips from one of your classic Jesus films, and they overdubbed audio of what it would have been like if Jesus had treated his disciples as if they were still under the law. Like, what if Jesus came to this earth as a very critical, nitpicky judge, someone who was only concerned with the letter of the law and not grace? I want you to check this out. Do you think he can fly? Here he comes. Well, all right. Now it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. And don't try and hide because I'm Jesus. I will find you. Let's start with you, Peter. You lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with the hammer. James, you laughed at him when he hit his finger. Moving right along, John, you drank too much wine the other night. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry. Matthew, we fell asleep in church, didn't we? Yes, we did. And, Thomas, you were slow dancing a little too close with that girlfriend of yours. Let's see, and you... I forgot your name, so you're off the hook for now. Um, hmm. I saw you smoking a cigarette behind that big rock the other day. Thaddeus, I hate to say I saw you stick up your middle finger at someone who cut you off when you were riding your camel. Benjamin, you aren't wearing your WWJD bracelet. Jacob, I don't mind you saying my name, but not after you stub your toe. Frank, 
You know what you did. I just can't repeat it because I'm Jesus. Alright, all you sinners, come with me. It's time to pay the piper. Man, it was only one cigarette. I heard that. Look at all these sinners. Alright, listen up. Listen to me. I'm Jesus. Listen to what I have to say. I have done many wonderful things. I have healed many people of diseases. I have performed many miracles so that I can tell you this. You're all evil. There is no hope. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> All right, we, we laugh at that because it's so extreme. But hear me on this, people. If Jesus came to this earth as the very embodiment of law and legalism, that wouldn't be far from the truth, would it? Especially the ending where he says, you're all evil. There is no hope. Thank you very much. As we'll see in today's passage, that's pretty much what the law says to us. And sadly, I think that's what a lot of churches communicate, that you're just a depraved, awful sinner. You're not pleasing to God. You can't be pleasing to God. And I think it holds people back because they, can't, they don't realize after they come to faith in Jesus that they can move beyond that. I think a lot of people, they fail to live the Christian life fruitfully. They fail to have victory in their spiritual walk because they're so busy trying to please God by obeying the law. And so today, I'm going to show you that in order to overcome sin, you've got to recognize that you are no longer living under the law, and you have to learn how to live in grace. So let's dive in here. This is Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, do you not know, brothers, he's clearly talking to Christians here, do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? Let's stop there. The first reason that we are free from the law is because the law doesn't have anything to do with people who are already dead. See, if there was a car accident and somebody was killed in that accident... Wouldn't it be odd if the police officer wrote a ticket to the deceased individual, even though he was at fault for that accident? See, the law has nothing to do with people who have already died. If you were on death row and you were executed and somehow you came back to life, the law would have no effect on you because you would have already paid the penalty, already paid the punishment. See, once a person has died, the law has no power over them. That's Paul's first illustration here. Next, Paul uses marriage as an illustration of how Christians are free from the law. Listen carefully to this. He says, for example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. See, a marriage contract is only good as long as both parties are still alive. When you got married, you vowed till death do us part. And that vow remains in effect 
as long as both people are alive. But if either spouse dies, the other one is free to remarry. Well, the wife in this illustration represents the Christian, and the law is kind of like your first husband. And it makes for a pretty tough relationship when you're married to the law, because the law is always perfect. It's never wrong. Can you ladies imagine being married to a man who is always perfect and never wrong? I mean, Wendy has to deal with that all the time. It's rough, people. <laughs> Seriously, though, it would make for a rough relationship if you were always, think about this, always, always, always the one who was in the wrong, wouldn't it? Well, the law is like this perfect husband who's very picky, very particular. If the law was a man, he would demand absolute perfection from his wife. He'd dominate her. He'd make lists of things for her to do every morning. And then he'd go off to work and come home in the evening at the same time, never late, walk over to that list of things to do and say, let's review your day. And being perfect, he would find every little thing she had done wrong. Well, how would that wife feel? Like a failure, frustrated. She couldn't ever measure up to all the rules and all the regulations. And Paul is saying, if you try to live your Christian life that way, by living under the law, you'll be frustrated. You'll have a guilt complex your whole life. And one other thing to note in this illustration is that the husband doesn't lift a finger to help his wife. The law doesn't help you live the Christian life. It just sets the standards. And so sooner or later, that wife will be thinking, man, how can I get out of this, right? Man, I can't stand the pressure of living under this. I could, I could murder him. I could get a divorce. Or, or maybe if I died. Like if I died, then I'd get out of it. Well, that's the lesson in verse 4. But the question is, who has died in this relationship? Look at verse 4. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Who does he say has died? We have. Remember last week in Romans 6, we learned that part of being a believer is being in Christ. And part of being in Christ means that when Jesus died on that cross, you died with him. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Past tense. I have been crucified with Christ. That's positional truth. The Bible says that in essence, all believers have died to the law. They have died to sin. We died with Christ on that cross. So Paul says, all believers have died, and our old husband was the law, so legally we're now free. And who's our new husband? Well, look at verse 4. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Our new husband is Christ. Folks, that is great news. It means we get to enjoy all the benefits of being free from the law. And let's talk about some of the blessings of being free from the law and married to Christ. First of all, you have a new freedom. It's on your outline. In verse 3, Paul says to the wife, but if her husband dies, she is released. Did you catch that? She is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. You are released. You have a newfound freedom. Vance Habner, an old preacher from the South, told a story related to this concept. It's about a rather odd lady who owned a large plantation prior to the Civil War. Habner wrote, writes this. He said, 
He said uh, her husband had died years before, and she was known for being slightly eccentric. So she had her dead husband stuffed, yeah, and sat him in a chair in the parlor, propped up in a glass airtight case. Whenever anybody walked into her home, the first thing they'd see was her dead husband sitting there. Her neighbors thought she was going crazy. Like, that's hard to believe. So they encouraged her to take a vacation for a while. Well, this lady liked the idea so much that she traveled abroad for several years. And in the midst of her travels, she fell in love and remarried. Now, she and her newfound husband decided to move back to her plantation, but she forgot about the old stuffed husband sitting in her house. As the story goes, when they arrived at the plantation, the groom unlocked the door and started to carry his bride over the threshold, but was startled by the man sitting in the parlor. In his shock, he dropped the bride and shouted, who's that? And very nonchalantly, this woman said, oh, that's just my old husband. I guess he's got to go now. (laughs) Yeah, the point is simply this. You're not married to the old law anymore. So there's no sense even keeping it around. You have a new husband, Jesus. You've been released from the old law. You have a newfound freedom in Christ. Second, you have a new relationship. Look at verse 4 again. You also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. Okay, now that you're dead to the law, you can be fully devoted to another, and that is Jesus. Your allegiance is to him. And you might circle that word another there. There's something really cool here that you wouldn't catch unless you understood the Greek language. The word translated another there, hetero, it means another of a totally different kind. Totally different kind. Paul is saying that you have a new husband of a totally different kind. Your relationship with Jesus is nothing like your relationship under the law, not even close. It's not rules. It's not regulations. It's a relationship of love and freedom. That's good news. Third, you have a new purpose. Okay, what's the purpose of becoming a Christian? Verse 4 again. That you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. There it is. Your purpose is to bear fruit to God. What is the fruit that we're to bear? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, freedom from the law, it doesn't mean a freedom to just go out and sin. The purpose behind giving you freedom is to lead you into a more productive, fruitful Christian life. And you'll never be a fruitful Christian if you try to do it by keeping the law. But you will if you live in a loving relationship with Christ. All right, fourth, one more. You have a new motivation. Verse six. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul says we now have a whole new way of serving God. Back to our illustration of marriage, the lady that's married to the harsh, demanding husband, she cooks the meals, cleans the house, does whatever other tasks they've agreed upon, and all the while, she hates it. 
But then that husband dies and she marries a new man who loves her and treats her with respect, shows concern for her, is genuinely concerned about her welfare. And now she does many of the same things she did before, but her attitude is completely changed. Now she does those things out of love, not out of fear, not out of guilt, not out of obligation. See, that's what Paul is saying here. It doesn't mean we just toss all rules and all regulations out the window. No, we're still supposed to follow a certain moral code, but we have a new motivation. Like, I don't do it because I'm afraid God's going to hate me. God's going to condemn me. No, I do it because I love him, because I want to please him. It's no longer a matter of I should. It's now a matter of I want to. And folks, just so you know, what I'm saying here is both biblically and psychologically sound. Did you know that psychologists tell us that anytime you put the word, sh- the word should before something, anytime you put that word should before something, you procrastinate. Like, I should go on a diet. I should exercise. I should make better use of my time. You know, for a little while, that may motivate us, but then we give up because we have this automatic resistance. When the law pushes against you, your tendency is to push back. And we think guilt will motivate us, but it just doesn't last. It's about as effective as nagging your spouse or something. The law is like that. It nags us. It nags us. But as a Christian, you're called to focus on love in the relationship, not rules. And I would say this, Jesus replaced the should of the Old Testament with the can of the New Testament. It's not, I should do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, it's I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when I realize I can, that motivates me. So we have a whole new motivation. We serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now let me give you a question to wrestle with here. You may need to think hard about this. Why, why people, do you serve God? Do you serve God out of a fear of him? Do you serve God to maybe earn some brownie points with him or something? Do you serve God out of just obligation and, and, and duty? Or do you serve God because you're afraid, hey, he might toss me an alley. I might lose my salvation. Okay, none of those are legitimate reasons for serving God. You need to learn how to serve in the new way of the Spirit. And God has left us here on earth to serve him, but he is just as concerned about your motivation for serving as he is the service itself. Think about it. What delight does God get out of Christians who begrudgingly serve him? You know, I could stand up here like a lot of preachers do and say, well, if you don't serve the Lord, God's not going to love you. I'd be lying. That's why we don't use guilt as a motivator here in our church, because it's not the motivation of the New Testament. We should serve God out of love, out of gratitude for all he's done for us. And we should also serve out of our giftedness. So you need to discover what your spiritual gifts are and use those to serve. Then it'll be a joy, not a chore, because you're in your zone. You're in your element. Paul says, we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Not out of duty, but out of love. So those are the blessings of being free from the law. Well, next, what Paul's going to do is he's actually going to walk us through some of the purposes of the law. Paul just painted kind of a negative picture of our relationship with the law. And so now he wants to clarify that the problem isn't really with the law. It's with us. 
In fact, the law serves at least three distinct purposes. Check these out. First of all, the law, people, defines sin. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. One purpose of the law is to help us distinguish right from wrong. And in a world that is so morally mixed up where truth is often thought about as being relative, the law defines some absolutes for us. Now, some people say, well, that may be wrong for you, but, it, but it's okay for me. Now, the, the law cuts through those bogus arguments and clarifies right from wrong for all of us. Paul talks about coveting, and he says, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. See, Paul, being a strict Pharisee, he kept his actions pretty clean. But he said, that 10th commandment there, man, it always bugged me. And you know why? Because the 10th commandment's the only one that deals with inner desires. And that's actually the basis for all the others. Lying, cheating, stealing, murdering, it all starts on the inside. Paul says, I, I wouldn't have known that unless the law had pointed it out. Which brings us to the next purpose of the law. The law, people, arouses sin. Look at verses 8 to 9. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. See, the law actually stirs up, it incites sin. And again, the problem isn't really with the law, it's with us. Verse 5 says the same thing. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. Now, how does the law provoke me to do wrong? I'll tell you how. It makes sin desirable. People, human nature is such that as soon as you tell someone, don't do this, <laughs> they're going to want to try that, right? They're going to go, well, why not? Like, why wouldn't I do that? And that sinful nature goes all the way back to Adam. And the more you tell people not to do something, the more they're going to be tempted to try it. Prohibition increases desire. Let me say that again. Prohibition increases desire. Don't touch. Wet paint. Keep off the grass. Whatever you do, don't. Now, if the law arouses sin, what implications might that have for us? Say for you and I, maybe, maybe for you who are parents out there. Well, it means that they, you're the kind of parent that likes to go around just setting all kinds of laws, expecting them to change your kid's nature. You're going to be in for a big surprise. Laws won't change your kids. Control, maybe, but not change. If anything, setting a multitude of laws will cause your kids to want to test them. So I would say rules ought to be phrased in a positive way. Instead of saying, don't track mud into the house, say, hey, wipe your feet at the door. See the difference there? There's a difference. Now, usually when you make a law, you're putting people's focus on the very thing you don't want them to do. Commenting on this tendency of the law to arouse sin by putting ideas in our heads, 
Haddon Robinson once told a pretty interesting story. He said, the law can indeed prompt us to sin. Several years ago, a high-rise hotel was built in Galveston, Texas, overlooking the Gulf of Mexico. In fact, they sank pilings into the Gulf and built the structure out over the water. Well, right before the hotel was about to have its grand opening, someone thought, what if people decide to fish out the hotel windows? So they placed signs in all the hotel rooms that said, no fishing out the hotel windows. Hey, you see where this is going, don't you? Sure enough, many people ignored the signs. It created a humongous problem. People tossed bait out their windows. Fishing lines got snarled. People in the dining room saw fish flapping against the picture windows. (laughs) Finally, the manager of the hotel solved the problem by simply taking down those little signs. And this is what he said. He's so right. No one checks into a hotel room thinking about fishing out of the windows. And he was right. The problem went away. The law, although well-intentioned, created the problem. People, the law arouses sin. And how about one final purpose of the law? The law reveals the depth of our sin. This is a biggie. Verses 10 to 13. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. See, the law is good. The problem's not with the law. It's with us. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. See, the law shows us how bad our badness really is. I think it reveals to us the ugliness of our sin. When we take a perfect standard and we hold it up to ourselves, it makes us look bad. So what's the solution? Well, look over at Galatians 3, 23 to 24. This is also Paul writing here. He says, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The main purpose of the law is to prove to you that you can't do it on your own. You can't be good enough to get into heaven. You'd have to be as good as God. You'd have to be perfect, and nobody is perfect. Anyone who takes an honest look at the law and then takes an honest look at themselves should realize that they fail miserably. So the law, interestingly enough, the law actually forces us to depend on God's grace. It pushes us to depend on God's forgiveness because we can't be good enough. We can't keep his perfect laws. All right, next week, we're going to dive into the second part of Romans chapter 7. And I think, I have a feeling you'll be able to identify with what Paul says there. Paul actually asks a question that all of us have asked ourselves at one time or another. It's this, why do I do what I don't want to do? You ever said that? (laughs) Why do I do what I don't want to do? And if you want to find the answer to that dilemma, you have to come back next week, right? There we are. Let's pray.
Lord, I want to thank you so much. Thank you, Jesus, that you set us free. You set us free from the law of sin and death. Thank you that you came and you were grace personified. And so we know that our God is a God of love, a God of grace, a God of forgiveness. So I'm thankful that we are free, and I pray that we would live in that freedom, not try to go back to, hey, I got to do this, 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 in order to please God, earn brownie points with God, or, or God's going to condemn me. Now that we would put our faith in Jesus and him alone, and then recognize that the moment we trust in Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life, we're a new creation. We have a new relationship. We're dead to the law and alive to this new life, alive to Jesus, to love him, to serve him, to walk in freedom. God, help us to remember that the purpose for you setting us free is not to go back into all the muck and mire of our old sinfulness, but to bear fruit to you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that all those things would exude from us because we're walking by faith in the power of your Holy Spirit. So God, help us to embrace this new motivation. Not I should, but I can do all things through Christ in me. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You guys have a fantastic week.